Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. This week on the podcast, we've got two very special guests. The first is Tom King, Chief Investment Officer at Nanook Asset Management. Before starting his career in finance, Tom was an Olympic sailor. He won a gold medal at the Sydney Olympics and was awarded an Order of Australia medal. He's worked as a mergers and acquisitions manager for NM Rothschild and Son, and was an investment manager at Consolidated Press Holdings, the investment vehicle of the Packer family. After leaving Consolidated Press Holdings, he co-founded Nanook Asset Management, which is focused on investing in industries that contribute to improving global sustainability and efficiency. Also joining us today is Simon Holmes Accord, an energy transition specialist. Simon was the founding chair of Hepburn Wind, Australia's first community-owned wind farm. He was the founding chair of the Melbourne Energy Institute Advisory Board and is now a senior advisor to the Climate and Energy College at the University of Melbourne. He's also a regular writer on the subject of renewable energy for The Guardian. In this week's episode, we'll discuss the investment case for sustainability, how well renewable energy stacks up against its competitors on an economic basis, and some exciting new products that could have a huge impact on sustainability. Finally, if you're loving the rules of investing, then why not tell someone about it? Pick your favourite episode and send it to a friend, or just head on over to iTunes and hit subscribe. Either way, you're helping to increase the profile of the podcast, and therefore, the quality of the guests that I can bring to you. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Simon, Tom, welcome to the show. It's great to have you both here. It's great to be on. Thank you. Before we get into the really interesting questions, I wanted to spend a couple of minutes dealing with the basics. I started preparing this podcast following the 2018 report from the IPCC, uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And then just a week later after that, the Bank of England also got involved and warned the banks and insurers to improve their planning for climate change risks. These are just a couple of recent examples, but I think it's pretty fair to say that the body of scientific evidence that supports the theory that global warming is being caused by man-made CO2 emissions is absolutely overwhelming at this point. So why do you think some people still deny the science of climate change? Simon, let's start with you. I reckon there are a couple of reasons, Patrick. Uh, the first one, I think, is is just tribalism. Um, just like... Uh, some people will be obsessed with one football team and one one with another and have uh, unquestioned uh, loyalty to it. Um, we we went through a period in Australia, perhaps a decade ago, where every uh, you know every every Greens candidate had their photo in front of a wind turbine in their how to vote on their how to vote card. Get up had a wind turbine in their logo for a little while, and uh, it became associated as a you know, I guess as a totem for for the left and, and, uh, you know, totem for the radical left. And I think that helped really rust people on, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, in quite a reactionary manner. So that's a tribalism argument. Um, the other one I think is, um, is I guess sort of the self-preservation of, uh, of, of ego or self, self narrative that the, you know, the last 50 years of, of history, uh, you know, globally, but you know, especially Australia, it's been a phenomenal advancement from you know, 50, 70 years ago, whatever, we, 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 th- there was still a lot of frontier 
Uh, we were about a quarter of the population uh, 70 years ago from, from what we are right now. And the, the generation before us worked really, really hard to bring Australia forward. And for us to look at them in the eye and say, yeah, great job, but what about screwing up the climate? Um, that's pretty hard narrative for a bunch of people to take. Um, and yeah, talking to talking to a lot of a lot of older folks, I I see. Uh, you know, I've got I've got a good friend uh, whose whose father worked on the Hazelwood Power Station, uh, and uh, yeah, it took him quite a while to come to terms with the fact that a lot of people are uh, upset at the uh, the outcome of of his life's work, even though it was a heroic engineering effort to work out how to uh, burn that brown coal. Um, so I think it's just that journey that 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 people go on. Uh, I don't. Yeah, it's not a, it's not about the science. It's about tribalism and and one's self narratives. Tom, did you have any thoughts on that one? Do you think that that's pretty close to the mark there? I think um, Simon's spot on. I, I think um, um, that Al Gore nailed it. Um, it's an inconvenient truth, um, and it's a very uncomfortable truth for people to front up to, um, and that you know, people don't want to acknowledge that you know, their life has been spent um, producing an outcome that we look back on now as um, perpetrating great damage on the environment. Um, I don't think people set out to do that. Um, uh, and it's a huge step for people to acknowledge that that might even be the case. Um, it's also, you know, I think for some people, uh, an easy point of view to take at this point in time, um, because it's not something that they see as affecting them in a in an overt way during their lifetime, and so it's a I guess it's an easy out from dealing with the issue to do that. Yeah, I guess for a lot of younger people, we grew up with the inconvenient truth being part of our lives already. But having that introduced to you at a later stage in your life, it, it would be a, a very different different prospect. Do you do you actually think that any of the arguments that the uh, that the let's say the denialist uh, side throws at us. Are there any that have any validity or is there, are we wasting our time in, in considering, um, you know, the, the arguments against climate change? I, look, I think you've got to be quite pragmatic about this. Um, the, um, the fact that infrared radiation is absorbed in the atmosphere, uh, by carbon dioxide has been known, um, since the 18, late 1800s. Um, it didn't really capture scientific attention until the 1960s, um, but no one is debating the fact that that occurs, and that is what the greenhouse um, gas effect is. Um, and it's undeniable that as humans we're putting a lot of um, infrared absorbing gases into the atmosphere. Um, the complexity is that um, understanding the longer-term implications of that and modelling them is extremely complex. And there are a lot of factors that affect um, the rate at which those um, changes might occur and, and what feedback mechanisms might accelerate or slow down those kind of changes. And so it, it is absolutely right to be debating um, uh, aspects of the modelling, but the fundamental premise that putting um, infrared radiation absorbing gases into the atmosphere in higher and higher concentrations um, is going to cause the planet to warm, um, I think is, you know, way beyond dispute now. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's obviously a political football of an issue. Uh, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a media football. It's, it's a, it's a convenient, uh, battlefield in, in, in the, in the culture wars. But if you look at what is happening 
in uh, in in the investment world. You look what's happening in uh, in insurance in uh, in the in the in, in the ongoing development of our energy networks. Uh, certainly. Uh, industry is is not waiting around for this to be debated in the public sphere and wait until the last denier uh, is convinced or or passes away. Uh, yeah, the, to to a large degree, the rest of the world, you know, or the world is getting on with it. We often hear in Australia people people complaining about Australia being behind, but actually, in many ways, we're 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 getting on with it, and there are some really great great news stories from Australia. Well, I wanted to give our listeners some uh, what I call dinner party facts that they can throw around, just some fun bite-sized pieces of information that are easy to remember. I was wondering, could could you share maybe one or two pieces of highly compelling evidence or stats or facts that you think demonstrate why people can't ignore climate change anymore? I'll leave with one. Um, well, one an interesting one that I don't, that I heard uh, recently, and I've, I've, I've followed up and had a look at some of the science behind it, is what happens uh, is, is ocean acidification. So we talk a lot about the warming of the atmosphere, uh, but we've we've increased the uh, atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide um, by about fifty percent over the last uh, one hundred and fifty years, and we're and it's accelerating the rate we're doing so. So we've taken it from about 280 to 410. As we do so, the ocean becomes more and more acidic. Uh, we're on track, unabated. Uh, you know, and if, if we don't do anything, we'll hit 800 parts per million by the end of this century. At 800 parts per million, the ocean's pH uh, drops to 7.7. 7, uh, and uh, at that level, shellfish can't make their, their shells anymore. Coral, uh, lots of coral and uh, mollusks uh, are unable to actually pull the calcium out of the water and make their shells. Once that happens, we see a uh, collapse of the entire ocean uh, ecosystem. So we're, while, while we're talking about the, uh, the, the warming, and that's very, very significant, um, you know, this is the very, very basic figure, physics, that, or, or chemistry rather, that you put carbon dioxide uh, into water and it becomes more acidic. That's pretty scary. So much of our population relies on the, on the ocean for, for food. It it's pretty amazing it's pretty to think sobering, what, what would happen <laughs> if we lost that. Um, Tom, did you have any, any facts or figures for us? Yeah, I'm going to go back to 1896 when this concept of greenhouse gases was first looked at. And the um, guy who did that was a Swedish Nobel Prize winning scientist. Um, I'll mispronounce his name, but it was Svent Arhenus. And he um, wrote a paper um, postulating that the absorption of um, infrared radiation um, you know, would cause um, the um, temperature to rise. And if uh, uh, you doubled the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it would translate to something like a 5 to 10 degree rise in um, the temperature of the earth. And that's not far off from, you know, where we are today in terms of scientific theory. And interestingly, at the time, um, he was looking at, uh, at whether uh, there was a likelihood of ice ages coming again. Um, and he postulated that it would be a good thing to increase man-made um, CO2 emissions uh, in order to warm the earth so that we could support a higher population. Now, I'm not sure that's the uh, <laughs> the current view anymore. Um, but look, the point being that um, the science behind climate change um, was worked out you know, with a pencil and paper 120-odd years ago. Well, let's move on a little bit from the science and... I want to talk about the investment case. So 
obviously, the, we, we often make cases for investing in, uh, you know, renewable technologies and, uh, and efficiency based on issues ar- ar- around morality, science, etc. But I wanted to take it a look from a purely capitalistic st- standpoint for a moment. Could you explain to us why investing in sustainability, energy transition uh, and climate change related in- industries makes sense from that angle? Absolutely. I think there are, I mean, there are two broad reasons why it makes sense. Um, and one is risk related and one is opportunity related. Um, I think if you look at um, uh, both what's happening from an environmental point of view and a policy point of view globally and where that's likely to trend in coming years and what's happening on a technology, um, on the technology front in terms of uh, the improving competitiveness of sustainable technologies, um, it's fairly evident that you're going to see some dramatic shifts in major parts of the economy away from traditional technology and towards new, more sustainable solutions. Um, and that presents enormous risks in terms of legacy assets, um, uh, coal mining, coal-fired power station, even gas um, exploration and gas um, power uh, you saw Germany come out uh, only a week or two back with a plan to totally phase out coal-fired power by 2038. Um, that kind of policy initiative and that direction um, is only something we're going to see more of and irrespective of whether um, uh, politicians seek to accelerate that transition, the economics of new technologies are likely to result in that kind of outcome you know, before 2050. Uh, and so there's enormous risks around maintaining exposures to to, to, to industries that are going to suffer through those transitions. Uh, but there's also a very interesting opportunity set of businesses that benefit from those structural changes over time. Would you be able to maybe broadly just take us over some of those opportunities in, in other industries that you're talking about there? Well, I guess the way we look at the world, um, uh, there's going to be a very broad set of changes um, in the economy to... Uh, improve global environmental sustainability, and that's not just greenhouse gas emissions, it's um, air pollution reduction, it's waste management, it's dealing with um, declining and more polluted water resources. Uh, and in all of those areas, um, you're going to see significant changes, and, and those industry those changes are going to manifest themselves all across um, industry. Uh, any type of business is going to have some sort of exposure to those areas, uh, and, and new technologies are going to affect the way that we we go about doing things. And so it's not just um, uh, new energy technologies, growth in solar, growth in wind, growth in energy storage, growth in grid management technologies and so on, um, but it's uh, it's a set of technologies that are going to enable us to um, operate our business and live our lives in a more efficient and less resource-intensive way. Did you want to, t- to add yeah, to that, Simon? Yeah, just sort of back on, on, on the fundamentals. Maybe if we were talking about this five to ten years ago, we'd be looking at those uh, those climate uh, facts that, that we started this conversation with, and we'd be making the case that we really should start this transition. That that you know, and we'd be we'd be having a debate about whether whether we you know, perhaps some whether we should. I I I think most most uh, most people engaged in the uh, or lay, lay laymen uh, lay people involved in the debate don't realise that this transition is actually well underway and it's accelerating at, at a massive rate. So to give to give you a uh, a statistic. It took it took us uh, thirty years, the th- thirty years to to uh, two thousand and seventeen, to build twelve gigawatts of renewables in Australia. 
and 2018 to 2020, we're building another 12 gigawatts. So in, in, in the last decade, we've gone to, from 10 to 20% renewables. In the next two to three years, uh, we'll go to 30, uh, 33 with what's already locked into the system and uh, 50% by 2030, uh, which, is, which is a target that's a political football at the moment. Uh, that actually would require Australia to slow down uh, to hit to hit fifty percent. So uh, we we're, we're actually uh, on on track at the at, at the current rate, uh, and there's a fair bit to do to lock in that rate. But um, we're we're well set to be at fifty. So this transition, it's not a matter of if or when. The when it started, uh, it's well underway. And so, you know, any 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 investor that's not you know aware of that uh, is 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 really in yesterday's world. Yeah, I know I was reading just this morning, um, it's less popular here, but particularly in the UK, you can invest in trusts that are set up that just buy already built wind and solar assets, just purely as an infrastructure scale investment, you know, collect your five to 7% per annum yield. And it's looking a lot more, a lot like a more like a regular investment these days, rather than something alternative and unusual. And re- retail offerings for those, right? Very accessible yeah. to, to everyone, not not just wholesale investors. Yeah. Well, I think that actually leads kind of comfortably into our next question, um, which is certainly as, and I think this has actually become, at least from what I've noticed, more pronounced is the amount of conflicting information about the role of renewables in the grid, particularly as we're reaching kind of a stage where they're quite a significant part of our grid now. There's some people out there suggesting that that's not sustainable, and that once you get above certain percentages, I've heard I hear fifteen to twenty percent seems to be thrown around a lot of uh, intermittent. Uh, sure, I remember. I remember it at five when, when people said five percent would destroy the grid, and then yeah. ten, and then fifteen. <laughs> uh, yeah, there there are there are new challenges all the time, uh, and and certainly with uh, you know, uh, thinking at a particular point in time, you you uh, you, know, you, you you can see a barrier. But at the same time, we're heading towards that barrier. There are smart people working to, to tear those down. So we, uh, there, there's a there's a lot of confidence we can get to very high level, high, high penetrations. But we are going to need to upgrade our grid. We are going to need to work uh, on on uh, new dispatchable energy systems, uh, whether whether that's uh, you know, clean energy or uh, uh, gas or or, or, or hydrogen produced, um, and other dispatchables like storage, pumped hydro. Uh, and um, demand response uh, is, it will, will play an interesting role going forward. So these these issues, we, we know what the issues are for going to higher level, and there are people working on them. But we need to have uh, you know, investment frameworks and uh, you know, I guess government orient the sector towards solving those problems, uh, or we won't solve them the most efficient way. I, I think the piece that's missing from this discussion in the public discourse um, is the economics of the underlying technologies. Um, so over the last nearly 50 years, the cost of solar energy has come down at roughly 20% per annum. Um, the cost of wind energy over the last decades come down by about 15% per annum. A- and we've had a, a system in Australia over the last sort of decade or so that's been similar to what's happened overseas um, that has um, necessarily subsidised renewables to make them economically viable. But if you look at the cost of solar energy and wind energy today in other parts of the world, and particularly the cost of energy storage, which is also coming down at in excess of 20% per annum um, today, um, you're already at a point where those sources of generation are 
cheaper than any other source of generation in any open tender um, around the world today. And that's unsubsidised. Unsubsidised. It is most likely that solar will be the cheapest source of new electricity generation, followed by wind um, and then more conventional technologies. Uh, and that margin, at 20 15 to 20% per annum decreases every year, is only getting bigger as we go forward. And you're already seeing instances where... Um, uh, solar and storage combined are already competitive with conventional generation. So two years ago, we saw some projects in Hawaii um, tended to supply electricity from solar with storage attached to, to profile that dispatch over the matching the load of the, the grid um, at 15 cents a kilowatt hour. That's a subsidized amount to the tune of 30%, so about 20 cents a kilowatt hour. Um, uh, last year, we saw projects tended at the beginning of last year around 11 cents a kilowatt hour. At the end of last year, we saw projects tended to supply electricity from solar and storage at, at high 7 cents, low 8 cents per kilowatt hour, um, which is cheaper than the cost of the diesel fuel alone to power the generators that it would be displacing. Um, and they're already at a point in that system, you know, in Hawaii, where you've got solar and storage providing about 40% of peak um, demand. And, and those costs are only going to keep coming down. Um, and, and really this concept of should we, you know, be supporting coal or, you know, protecting the, you know, integrity of our existing system um, and, and stopping subsidies to renewables, it, it's, a, it's an argument that's well out of date. We are headed towards um, a situation down the track, a decade or so, where um, renewables and energy storage will dominate the grid, whether you like it or not. It's got nothing to do with climate change. Um, it's got nothing to do with politics. It's just going to be raw economics. Um, and, and the problem we face today is that we aren't quite at that point in terms of economics in Australia. And it's very important that we don't spend excessive amounts on building infrastructure that's going to be written off in years to come. Um, and at some point, we've got a lot of infrastructure already that's going to become somewhat redundant in that transition and it's going to be economically painful um, for, for public shareholders or for the government or a combination and you know that's got to be got to be worked out but but be very clear that you know this transition is not going to be stopped by political arguments it's either going to be accelerated or slowed down we're just going to end up at the same point at a different point in time Simon? There's so if we we're having this conversation 10 years ago uh, we would have said uh, you know we would have had to say Acknowledge that renewables cost more, um, but there were you know there were there were uh, environmental reasons, health reasons, regional development reasons. We built up a stack of justifications for paying that margin, uh, and and we knew that if we subsidised them, we'd bring them down the cost curve. So there was a lot of justification went into that, and a lot of argy bargy around what was the right level of subsidy. Uh, we're now it's 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 really only in the last two, three, four years where renewables have come underneath the cost curve. Uh, of building new, uh, uh, new say coal and gas infrastructure, and we're now getting close, but not quite at uh, the price of of competing against uh, um, existing you know, fully depreciated thirty year old coal power stations uh, that are on legacy coal contracts. Um, there's a lot of uh, coal uh, capacity in Australia that's at the end of its service life, that's getting more and more expensive to maintain, that's rolling off uh, legacy cheap coal contracts. Uh, so renewables are um, uh, sit at the moment between you know, quite a bit lower than the cost of new coal infrastructure and not far above uh, the cost of legacy as those legacy stations become more expensive or they roll onto new contracts. 
the renewables are, are, are left the only ones standing financially. Mm-hmm. One just one 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 stat on that: the um, the average power station in Australia that's retired has has done so at forty two years of age. Um, the average coal power unit in New South Wales is thirty seven. So in in five years time, those power stations are are uh, you know, are above average age. Now some of them will hold on. Um, you know, quite a bit longer, um, may, maybe a decade, uh, but not the 20, uh, 30, 40 years that some would think they're going to hold on. I think we'll see a lot of retirements uh, through the second half of, of uh, the next decade. Well, as much as I feel sorry for the, for the people who are working in those places, I think that can only be considered good news. <laughs> Yeah, well, even the the, um, the Electrical Trades Union uh, uh, came out with a statement last year saying that Liddell Power Station is uh, old and unsafe and it's ready to close. So when, when you've got the union that represents those people working there, urging the company to get on and, you know, they want to see their employees in, in, a, in a new safe asset, uh, you know, those those assets will be replaced. Uh, you know, pe- people in, the, in those industries will find uh, will find new jobs in those industries and, and, and others. Uh, but yeah, we... we um, yeah, everyone who owns those assets knows that they're coming to end of life. Tom, I got the impression you wanted to add something more to that. Oh, look, I was just going to say that, I mean, it's, it's very clear that by the mid to late 2020s, just the operating costs of running existing infrastructure are going to end up being higher than the all-in cost of building new renewable capacity. And utilities will just act. You know, they, they will move in that direction um, because of the, the economics. And the other, the other point I wanted to make is we've d- talked a bit about Um, renewables in the context of wholesale power pricing. The reality is that um, businesses and consumers buy electricity at far higher prices that reflect the overall system costs. And we're already at points today where it's become economic for homeowners and businesses to generate their own power and in some instances generate and store their own power. Um, And as I said earlier, the economics just keep getting better and better unless retail and um, commercial power prices come down significantly, um, you're going to see an acceleration of that that transition. And I guess what bothers people is they think, well, it's all going to sort of blow up and not work at some point. But as Simon said earlier, the technology is all there to make a massively distributed system with lots of energy storage work um, and economics will drive investment in those solutions. Uh, And I have no doubt that in 10 or 15 years time, we'll have a system that's perfectly capable of operating like that. Can we put some put some numbers on on the table? Just the the cost of of wind and solar, uh, coal and gas. So about a decade ago was when I got in into the sector. Wind was probably then about one hundred and twenty to one hundred and forty dollars a megawatt hour. Solar was uh, two you know two hundred, but no one had ever built anything big. Um, so here we, and then. Um, uh, new coal and gas would both have been uh, comfortably, you know, well under a hundred, uh, and existing coal and gas were around about the thirty and forty, uh, thirty to sixty dollar range, perhaps. So we had you know, renewables at the at the very high end, and coal and gas at the lower end. Gas prices, uh, the, co- the the cost of gas fuel has tripled in Australia since we started exporting, uh, and coal is about double the cost of what it was uh, just just the fuel itself. Uh, a decade ago, so uh, and in that period, because of the you know, multiple reasons that, that that have driven solar and wind down the cost curve, uh, we saw the Victorian Victorian Renewable Energy Target last year contracted six projects: three wind and three solar. Um, all the bids were, uh, I'm told, in the 50s, so somewhere between 50 and 60. Uh, Snowy Hydro ran a similar tender last year; had eight projects uh, bid. 
some of them that, that they say some were under fifty dollars, uh, but all all of the projects as part of that were under sixty. So that's that's variable renewables. People say, well, what about firming them up? Snowy said that they can use their existing capacity to firm those up and offer the products offer this wind and solar firmed up in the market for 15 year contracts uh, at under $70. Now, if you wanted to build a new coal power station today, uh, you, you're, you're all in, your, your long-term uh, cost of the energy would be well over $100. Um, just the coal alone at current market prices would probably be around $60. So if the government gave you a coal power station, you had volunteer staff, you didn't maintain the plant, you might be able to compete with wind and solar but not not for very long because wind and solar keep coming down the cost curve. So you just can't get a business case up. For... I mean, we're already seeing overseas um, sol large-scale solar projects, much bigger than what we're seeing in Australia today, um, being contracted on an unsubsidised basis at around $0.02 cents a kilowatt hour, $20 a megawatt hour, um, so half the cost of coal -fired, existing coal-fired generation. And all the costs I gave you were unsubsidised before, those, all those costs. Yep, Tom's right. I would love to just talk a little bit about some technology and some products. So I'd love to hear about something that excites you both, uh, either because it, it could have a huge impact on sustainability, but also has an interesting investment case. Tom, would you like to, to, to have a go? Uh, look, the, I mean, in, in, if we're talking about energy, the thing that's really exciting at the moment is the cost of energy storage coming down. So large scale um, batteries um, or battery packs cost about... A thousand dollars a kilowatt hour uh, back in 2010. Um, you can buy a, a, a equivalent product today for about 130 dollars a kilowatt hour, and that kind of cost improvement is going to continue. And the implications of cheap energy storage in terms of what's possible um, in the energy landscape are extraordinary. Now, it doesn't mean it's an easy place to invest in, and like solar and wind and energy efficient technologies like LED lighting, where you've got um, uh, costs coming down at a rapid rate over a long period of time. Um, most of the businesses involved in manufacturing that product are not good quality businesses and not ultimately going to be good quality investments. Um, but the fact that cheap energy storage is available is going to open up some really interesting um, interesting investment cases for downstream usage. Um, and, and today you're starting to see some sort of interesting investment opportunities upstream now that the price of lithium and cobalt and so on have come down um, from peaks. Um, the, the other area I might mention that's interesting from a technology point of view uh, is um, around uh, the use of fuel cell technology um, to convert power, excess power into gas um, because it's hard to envisage our um, energy system moving away from having a gas component to it. We rely on it for a lot of um, usages, which electricity isn't particularly well suited to, but you're seeing... Um, so you're talking about not gas generation of energy there, but the actual direct feed of, of gas to people's so households. The, 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 yes, and, and the um, uh, typical use of a fuel cell has been to take gas, either methane or hydrogen, and convert it into electricity. But the same technology is now being applied in reverse, more cheaply than the alternative, which is called an electrolyzer, to convert excess power into hydrogen. And that hydrogen can be injected into our existing gas network, um, which has 
enormous storage capacity um, and, and uh, has the ability to be used for multiple different purposes. It can either be taken back into use for generation or it can be used in, in homes. And that's a technology which is investable. Uh, I, I, you know, we, we're not invested in it today because I don't think the right opportunities are mm. there, but one to watch um, going forward. So is that just using water and, uh, and basically producing hydrogen and oxygen out of the water? Is that what it's doing there? Yeah, it's taking carbon dioxide or... or or just water and putting it through a fuel cell in reverse and instead of turning instead of turning uh, um, uh, hydrogen into electricity and water you're turning water and electricity back into hydrogen and if you can do that cheaply it's a you know it's a large-scale alternative to battery technology certainly the interest in hydrogen has, has increased dramatically over the last year or so I think um, yeah in, in in the in the not too distant past there was uh, seemingly uh, an arms race between hydrogen and, and, and lithium iron as the uh, the enabler of uh, electric mobility. And I think a lot of people have been, become fixated on hydrogen as a mobility solution. Uh, I, I'm, I'm with Tom that it's it's very interesting. It, uh, where hydrogen becomes interesting, um, not only its ability to work really well in the grid uh, as, uh, as, as a technology that can uh, absorb power from the grid when power is cheap and can uh, feed gas generators when, when uh, power is scarce uh, from other technologies, but also as an important industrial feedstock. We, we, use, uh, we use methane for a lot of industrial processes. Um, many of those, uh, the, 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 um, well, the, they, they have a significant carbon byproduct. Um, as, as that becomes, um, you know, as, as we start to price that and recognise the um, uh, recognise the importance of removing that from industrial processes. We'll see hydrogen uh, be substituted in as, as as feedstock. Uh, we'll also see uh, it, it's it's also likely to be very important for high temperature processes. So we burn gas um, for for very high temperature flames in a lot of industrial processes. We're not going to get that with electric elements in in some cases. So uh, there's a lot of interest there and. Uh, there's one. There's a pro project I'm tracking over in in the uh, in the Kimberley region of of, of Western Australia. Uh, company CWP and Vestas are working together on a massive wind and solar farm uh, that would be as much generation as all of Australia's existing wind and solar. Uh, there, um, you know, it's 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 pie in the sky stuff, but some big names behind it. Um, Macquarie Banks uh, is, is, has come on to fund the development stage. Uh, and uh, it's it's announced that um, a significant amount of the energy will be turned into hydrogen products, either used locally for for Pilbara-based uh, uh, energy projects, or or exported, whether it's as in, in ammonia for, form or uh, fertilisers or uh, liquefied hydrogen. So there's a lot of opportunities for Australia to become an energy exporter. But as as, as Tom said, there's not a lot of opportunities sitting in front of investors right now that don't have a large risk. So it's something something to track. Um, I'm also I'm I'm tracking uh, small modular solar thermal, which I think is interesting technology. Solar thermal uh, has been sitting you know, as, as as one of the technologies that could become interesting for um, uh, you know one of the renewable portfolio for a long time. Wind and solar have pretty much eaten uh, eaten the market on everything. A, a few you know, again a decade ago there would have been and people would have said wind and solar and tidal and wave and uh, people were talking about towers and airborne kites and all that. No, wind and solar have eaten pretty much everything. But we have an emerging challenge with the, uh, the, the demand curve at the end of the day when the sun comes down on the times where the wind's not there. We've got very high ramp ramping in the market as everyone turns on their evening appliances. 
uh, that part of the day will become more and more of a challenge. And one of the technologies to solve that is solar thermal, where you're storing the energy uh, that you, you're storing the sun during the day and releasing it through uh, generators at, at night during that time. There's a lot of benefits to the power system for it, but so far, uh, all of the attempts to do it have been very high cap, very capital intensive, uh, and there, uh, it, it's it's a tiny market with very few players. Um, there are a number of players around that are looking at building small modular systems that can be mass produced, much the same tooling and size as uh, as a wind turbine factory, uh, and can crank these units out. Again, still out in the distance, but but a decade from now, we'll have a whole. Uh, uh, I guess, palette of, of uh, dispatchable energy uh, technologies that will help us make it a lot easier to integrate renewables as, the, as we push through the 50% uh, milestone. If you'll both excuse me for answering my own question, there was something that I read this morning, that you're, actually it was what you, you, you mentioned before, mate, reminded me of it, that I thought would be interesting to share with the audience, which um, I'm a very keen gardener myself. There's a lot of use for carbon dioxide in gardens, funnily enough. We need, <laughs> you need it for, for, uh, for photosynthesis. So um, there's companies both, I've seen it both in Australia and uh, I was reading this morning about a company in Switzerland that's actually capturing carbon dioxide that's uh, being created through energy uh, generation and is then using it, uh, pumping it into greenhouses to increase the yield on crops because, and of course, also it gets converted out of carbon dioxide there. So um, it's another interesting thing. I'm not sure, quite sure it's investable yet, but it's an interesting one to watch. Yeah, I mean, those interesting magnitudes are relatively small. So there's, um, we're, we're, I think the coal coal sector uh, is putting out about 15 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide a year, um, you know, while industrial processes, uh, as many of them consume carbon dioxide and the carbonated drinks industry, greenhouse, uh, lots of in industries do consume carbon dioxide, but uh, together I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're less than 1% or 0.1% of of the emissions that are currently coming out of uh, the flues of coal power stations. We just got to work on getting those uh, emissions numbers down then, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, I mean, that's really just happening. Um, you know, it's happening by, by attrition as these plants fall over. We've, we've had, um, we've had 13 coal fired power plants close in Australia uh, um, between 2012 and 2017. Uh, we're, we're unlikely, you know, say we're uh, you know, extremely unlikely to have a new coal plant built, we now see them replaced by, by a, uh, I guess, a portfolio or, or, or yeah, a balanced portfolio of wind, solar, storage, uh, demand response, uh, maybe gas, and hopefully that gas is, is uh, you know, a, a, zero, a net zero emissions gas. But um, yeah, they, this, this transition, as I mentioned before, it's not a matter of if, when, it's happening right now. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time today before we've managed to get to our regular questions. I was going to ask, would you both be willing to put your responses down to the regular questions in an email to me so that we can publish them with the podcast? Absolutely. Be, yeah. Happy to. Excellent. That way we can not put your answers to waste. Well, Simon, Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great to hear your thoughts and your interactions and all your wonderful facts and statistics. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you. <laughs>